So we're going to start in uh, Exodus 3 today, and I'd love for you to join me. First part of that chapter, Corey read for us a few minutes ago, Exodus chapter 3, the story about Moses encountering God. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we get to study together, to worship together. If you're visiting again, we thank you for your presence. Come and see us again. You ever been on a mountaintop, perhaps, at night, away from the noise pollution and especially the light pollution, and been able to look into the heavens in a way that you remember where it's clear and you can see stars that you didn't even know were up there, maybe? You ever had one of those experiences, maybe in a meadow or, I don't know, you ever have one of those? Where you see, you know, you see the Milky Way like you've only seen it on Google. <laughs> or you, 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 you get some glimpses of, of the, the heavenly bodies, some, some planets and stars and satellites that are out there. You ever had one of those experiences and you, you then start to realize how small you are, how big this place is. You ever had one of those experiences where you start having these kinds of thoughts and then you, you realize that there is a God who created all of us. And He created it with just His voice. Let there be light, and there was light. And let there be God created it. We live on a just a pretty normal sized planet in a fairly small solar system with a pretty average sized sun in a huge universe. And on our little planet, there are seven billion of us. And yet, we believe as Christians that the God who said, let there be light, and who slung those stars into the sky cares about you and me. We believe that. We believe that that God, that Creator God, that Father God who has the omnipotence, the, the power to create this place, that God has condescended. And He comes down and He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Not just us as this collective body, but He loves us as individuals. He loves you as a person. He loves you in spite of everything He knows about you. He loves you anyway. We serve that kind of God. It's, it's an overwhelming thing to realize that God is who He is, and yet God is concerned about us. Now, Imagine you're Moses. You've been in this wilderness for some time. You know what's normal and what isn't. You know about fire. You know fire has to have fuel and it consumes the fuel to burn. I mean, you know how the world works. And then you have this experience that you really can't explain. You don't have categories to put this in. You see this bush, this small tree that's burning with fire, which... I mean, he, he knew what fire was, of course. He had a lot of experience with it. He knew how it worked, but he, 
He witnesses this, this fire burning, but it's not consuming this. You know, he, he turns aside, and, and I just try to, try to imagine what it would have been like for Moses. He goes over there, and he sees this bush, and he's trying to process this. What in the world's going on? This fire's burning. You know, the, there's, there's fire in the center of it, and yet the leaves aren't being consumed. The branches aren't being consumed, so he turns aside to look at this, and all of a sudden, he hears this voice coming out of the middle of this bush, and it says, Moses, Moses. What do you say in response to that? Now, how do you deal with this? You don't know what in the world's going on. If you'd been there, if I'd been there, we would have probably responded something like Moses did. And I'm guessing the Hebrew could be translated something like this. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. What in the world is going on? Here I am, Moses says. What in the world? Now, this text, this text is fascinating on so many levels. And it's fascinating, not the least of, of, of those levels would be this. It's fascinating because we have here the first kind of encounter with God like this. And we have the first word, first time that this word is used. And it's used right here in the verse that I've got on the screen here. The first time this word is used, and it's the word holy. When you have this experience of a transcendent God and you realize that you're a small thing in a vast universe and there's this God who's bigger than the universe, which we can't even fathom how big the universe is, and God is infinitely bigger than that, and you have that kind of transcendent, sublime experience, that is the feeling of what you're, what you're kind of wrestling with is you're coming in contact with a holy God. And that word holy is hard to translate, I think, because it's a word that doesn't, I don't know what... It doesn't mean what we think it means. Or at least it doesn't mean exclusively that. And it means so much more than that. What, what, what do you think of when you think of holy? You use that word in the last seven days? Outside of church? I really limit you when I say outside of church because we don't use this word outside of church. We use it when we preach and teach. You use it when you read your Bible. But you don't use it a whole lot. People at work don't use this word holy a, a lot unless they're using it in a pejorative kind of negative way. Oh, you think you're what? You think you're so holy. <laughs> that's how we use the word. You think you're better than I am. You think you're so good, morally pure. That's, what, that's how people use it, or hypocritical, or whatever. We don't use it a lot. So what do you think of when you think of holy? You probably think of something like this. You know, you think of holy, you think, yeah, I've done pretty well this week. I've um, been pretty morally pure. I've told the truth. I've, I've, uh, I haven't done anything. A lot of times we, we think about it. It's kind of sexual, kind of, that kind of stuff. I haven't done anything morally impure this week, so, yeah, I'm, Holy, 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 sort of holy. It's so, and I do it that way too, but it is so not what this means. When this word is used in the, in the, in the Bible, it, it is connoting this idea of God being something that we're not. He is other. He is not us. He is so infinitely perfect that we can't even get close to him. We can't even, we can't, number one, we can't understand him. And number two, if we can't come anywhere near him because we don't deserve to be there. That's this overwhelming sense of unworthiness when you talk about the holiness of God. So the first word, first time this word is used, Exodus 3, right here, Moses comes in contact with this bush. God speaks to him and he says, here I am. And God says, first of all, Moses, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Some, some people think, some people think that it's right here that we have this 
practice established that is still being practiced in some cultures today. Not so much in our culture, though it is some, but not as much now in here. That is, when you invite someone into your home, when, when you go into someone's home, you take your shoes off. And, and this idea of this person is being hospitable and inviting you into their, their presence, and so out of respect for that, you take your shoes off. Could be some sort of connection there, but I think probably it has something more to do with the fact that we see this a lot in the Old Testament, we see it a lot in the Bible, where God wants us to know when we come into His presence, we are coming into the presence of a, of a being so holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, so holy other that we don't deserve to be there. And, and, and the feet representing, the soles of your feet representing the dirt and the grime and the mess. And you think about what Moses was. He was a shepherd taking care of the taking care of these sheep and all the stuff that's involved in that, all the stuff he would have stepped in. You don't bring that into the presence of God because he is holy other and he is holy, holy. He's different. So you'll come into his presence like that. That theme is all over the Bible. In fact, I want to suggest to you that this, this theme, ah, let me, I want to mention something before we go on. That last part of that, and I'll come back to that. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. That's all over the place in the Bible. Moses knew. I don't, I don't think he knew exactly what was going on, but he knew this. If I get close to that, I'll die. Because I can't be there. I don't know what his theology was like. I don't know how much Moses knew at this point in his relationship to God, but I know he had this overwhelming sense of, I don't deserve to be here, and I am scared to death that I'm going to die. That's, the, that's, that's how people feel when they come close to God. So, you got this theme. And what I'm going to do today, I'm actually going to do this, Lord willing, at least once more before the end of the year, a couple times after the first of next year, this idea of, um, of these big words in the Bible that, that tie, the, tie the story of the Bible together in a way that I hope will open our eyes to see some things we haven't seen before. And the first one of that is this word, holy. So we're going to spend some time talking about holy ground today. So you got this notion here, first time this word is used in Exodus 3, but it actually started a long time before this. Now you remember the story. I'm going to go through some of this fairly quickly, but just, just think about it with me for a bit. So you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good. God walks and talks with Adam and Eve. they in the garden together. Everything is perfect. They're having this relationship that apparently was unhindered by the humanity and certainly unhindered by sin at this point. So you got this beautiful thing in the Garden of Eden. I mean, a beautiful earthly paradise. But beyond that, you got the presence of God there. You got the tree of life there. You got Adam and Eve in the presence of God in a way that has not happened since then. Okay? So everything is good in Genesis 1 and 2, walking and talking in the garden, that sort of thing. And God had, you know, put this one restriction you can't eat of this one specific tree. And Adam and Eve did that, Genesis 3. Everything got messed up. I'm skipping over a lot there, you know, but that story's interesting. But then you get the end of this in Genesis 3, verse 23, the end of this. And you remember this? It's easy to read over, but you get to the end of chapter 3, and basically the text says God kicked him out of the garden. He kicked him out of his presence. The Lord God sent him out, sent Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden. At the end of that, it says he put these cherubim, these, uh, these angelic beings, to guard the entrance to the, this place. Uh, so they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. And those themes there, I'm going to 
tie back in in a bit. But just think about it. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They sinned against God, so what did God do? God said, okay, God who's infinitely holy, who's holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, H-O-L-Y, He's holy, holy, cannot be in the presence of sinful us. So He removed them from His presence, removed them from the garden. They don't have access to the tree of life. You know, all those rivers that flow through the garden, it's also missing in Genesis 2. So they're separated from that. Just hold that thought, okay? So it started there. It started there. Now this is where it's going to end. I'm going to do this quickly and we'll finish up here in a bit. We'll come back here and finish up. Last chapter of the Bible. All right, this, this is pretty cool. Think about this. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible. You read this, Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and you'll read some pretty neat stuff. And, and what you'll read is that there's this uh, angel showed John the river of the water of life, all this beautiful language, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on, the others, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Remember that? Tree of life. What's happening in Revelation 22? What, what happened in Genesis 3? We got kicked out of there. Why? Because we're sinful and God is holy. And so we, we don't have access to the tree of life. That's in Genesis 3. Revelation 22, the very last chapter of your Bible. Very last chapter. What does John see on either side of the river? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And, and, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I think I, I highlighted a couple things here because I think they're pretty neat. He showed him the tree of life. And he said, they will see his, what? Face. Genesis 3, we got kicked out of the garden. In, in Revelation 22, we're going to be in the presence of the tree of life and we will get to see his face, okay? But in between, in between, between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, there's this problem. And the problem is God is holy and we aren't. And the problem with that is we cannot be in the presence of God in our unholy state. And so you see this manifested in a lot of ways. I want to take you through a brief walk through the Old Testament, that where this theme comes out, okay? So think about it with me for a couple minutes. Next is 40. There's a lot that leads up to that, from Exodus 3 to Exodus 40. Lots of stuff happens. But here are a couple of things about it. They, Moses goes down and rescues the people from Egyptian captivity, and they head out over the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai, and God establishes a covenant with the people. I'm going to have a covenant with you. And in order for you to be in my people, in order for me to dwell in your midst, you're going to have to understand some things. You're going to have to understand you've got to live a different kind of life. Your life cannot be like everybody else. You've got to live a different kind of life. Now, that involved a lot of regulations, a lot of regulations about what they could do and what they couldn't do, things they could eat, things they couldn't eat. And there's this notion there as well, this idea. You remember reading Leviticus, for example, and reading about all the pure and impure stuff? Unclean, clean. Like if you touch a body, touch a dead body. Nothing, it, there's nothing sinful about touching a dead body, but a lot of those laws had to do with death, things associated with death and sickness and imperfection and, and um, a lack of wholeness. 
If you were involved in those sorts of things, if you touched them, you became unclean. And in that unclean state, you couldn't come toward God. So if you touched a dead body, for example, you were unclean for a period of time. You offered a sacrifice at the end of that time, and then you were enabled once again to come into the presence of God. It was associated with various things. It was associated with some reproductive fluids. It was, it was associated with, with um, skin problems like leprosy. It was associated with uh, lots of stuff. But the idea of this is, it is not, it is not a flippant thing to come into the presence of God. Now here's the thing. God said, okay, you're going to be my people. You're going to be holy. You're going to live different kind of lives. And I'm going to come live among you. I'm going to come down there and I'm going to live in the center of the camp. You remember how he did that? He did it in a building, a tent or tabernacle. Later became the later became the temple, right? So he said, I'm going to come down there and live in your presence, and you're going to, you're going to be around, around the tabernacle, but I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to live in your midst. And God was in the middle of that building, tabernacle, some sort of way. Call it the holy of holies, the most holy place, that, that inner sanctum where God symbolically dwelled with a cherubim and the altar or the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of the law and smoke when, when they constructed the tabernacle. And this is the text here, last part of Exodus, last chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40. They finished building the tabernacle and, and, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what happened here? First part of that text, what does it say? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Why? Because you don't come into the presence of God like that because you're not worthy <coughs> so a lot of requirements they would allow God would allow one person to come into that tabernacle into that into that room once one time once a year on one day high priest day of atonement and he better have done everything he was supposed to do when he goes in that room this is I mean, a lot of that stuff you read in the Old Testament, you think, why in the world is this here? This doesn't make sense. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to avoid pork anymore. Aren't you thankful for that? We don't, we don't have to avoid catfish anymore. Thankful for that as well. We don't have to avoid, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of these things. We'll come back to that in a second. But you read a lot of this and you wonder, why is that there? It was there, at least in part, to teach the people, you're mine. And I'm holy. And you don't come into my presence contaminated or unclean. And God, some of, these, some of these seem to be quite arbitrary. And maybe some of them were. I think probably some of them were arbitrary. They were just to make a point. Look, you don't come into my presence like that. To make them understand that God is holy. Okay, so at the end of Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle of Moses. Like, I can't go in there. I can't go in there. You think he's thinking of the holy, the holy ground around the bush thing back in Exodus 3? God, he, he sees God again. He sees God again at the end. God is dwelling in their midst. And he cannot enter the tent of meeting. You know, he can't come in to that tent because he recognizes he is not worthy. I mean, this, goes, this theme goes on through the Old Testament. I alluded to this earlier just quickly, though. Isaiah 6, Isaiah he has this vision. 
high and Lord's high and lifted up. He's ushered in this vision to the presence of God. And the language there indicates like, like um, Isaiah is going into the Holy of Holies. He's going into that inner room of the tabernacle in this vision. And Isaiah recognizes, wait a second, who can go into the Holy of, of Holies? High priest. Isaiah's not a priest. When can he go in there? The Day of Atonement. This is not the Day of Atonement. Um, he, he can only go in there when he's prepared himself according to all these different <laughs> requirements. And Isaiah says, I haven't done that. That's why I was, Isaiah absolutely loses it here. Because in his vision, he's in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, and Isaiah falls apart. And he says, you know, I'm dead. You know, nice knowing you. I'm gone. This is, this is it for me. Woe is me. I'm dead. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I'm, I'm unclean. I, I, I'm not qualified to be here. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. They don't deserve to be here either. None of us do. So what in the world? I'm dead. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happens in that story in Isaiah 6, if you go back and read it, is God sends an angel, one of these, one of these cherubim, these angels. They take this live coal, this hot coal, and they bring it over to Isaiah. And in his vision, touches him on the lips. I'm a, I'm, I've got unclean lips. God says, I'll take care of that. Sends alive this hot coal over, touches him on the lips. What's happening there is holiness is coming out from God and making Isaiah holy. That's, a, that's an important thought. God, who is perfectly holy, is extending His holiness to unholy people and making them holy and qualifying them to come into His presence. This is a bit of foreshadowing, okay? This notion is going to come out in just a minute. I'll show you how this happens. All right. Big deal here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47. If you, I know we're, I'm rushing through some of this because I want to do this in one. But... Um, Take, write this down. Read Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. All right, read it sometime. It's pretty neat. Ezekiel sees the temple. Okay, so stay with me. You can't come to the temple if you're unclean. You got to do all the, jump through these hoops. You got to do all the stuff to come to the temple. Because God's holy and I'm not and I can't come there, you know. So I, Ezekiel's getting this glimpse of, of, the, of the temple. And what's happening in this vision is there's water that's coming out of the temple. It's a, it's a neat little story. Water's coming out. It's just a trickle. And, and Ezekiel starts walking. And he starts following this trickle of water. And then pretty, pretty soon it gets to be ankle deep. And he's walking in water that's ankle deep. And then he keeps following it. And the water gets deeper. And eventually it's waist deep. He's still in the water. And he, and he's, he keeps following it. And then pretty soon it's up to his neck. And then it gets so big, it's this huge river that he can't even cross. And what's happening is the water is flowing. And everything it's touching is turning green. And it flows into the Dead Sea, named appropriately, because nothing grows in the Dead Sea because it's dead. But this river flows into the Dead Sea and everything starts coming alive again. There's fruit flourishing and greenness and life and all this stuff in this vision that he sees in Ezekiel 47 what's he doing this is foreshadowing because in the old testament this didn't that you couldn't come to the temple unless you had prepared yourself okay but big stuff is on the horizon this is looking ahead to a time when purity and cleanness and holiness are going to come from God and they're going to make everything alive and beautiful and clean again. Okay. 
Now, these are verses that you may have read before and you thought, ah, you know, maybe not even noticed this, as I have not, you know, I've read these and not noticed some of this stuff. But when you, when you tie these ideas together, it's pretty fascinating. So you got Ezekiel having this vision of, of holiness flowing out of the temple and making holy everything that it touched. You see, in the Old Testament, what would happen if you touched somebody who is unclean? You know what happened to you? You became unclean. If you touched a dead body, you became un unclean. If you touched a leper, you became unclean. See, the uncleanness flowed from the unclean person to the clean person. But in the New Testament, God said when Jesus comes, things are going to change. And so you have verses like this one with a leper in Matthew 8, 1 through 4. You didn't touch a leper. It was against the law. You didn't do that. Why? Because you were made unclean. Then you couldn't go to the temple. The uncleanness of the leper passed to you, but Jesus saw the leper and he stretched out his hand. And what did he do? He touched him. And instead of the leper's uncleanness flowing to Jesus, Jesus' cleanness and wholeness flowed to the leper. You see, holiness and purity are flowing out from God and they're sanctifying the people that are touched by it. You've got this idea also reflected in Matthew 9, 25. Jesus went in and he took this, took this little girl who's dead by the hand. And what happened? His wholeness flowed from him to her and she arose. You've got stories like this all over the place. In Luke 7, the story of this sinful woman lived on the wrong side of town, done all the wrong things. She comes into the presence of Jesus and Simon is absolutely offended by the fact that this sinful woman is touching Jesus. But instead of her sinfulness causing Jesus to become sinful, his perfection flows to her. And at the end of the story, he says, your sins are forgiven you. Wholeness is being given to those who are not whole instead of those who are not whole affecting those who are. Do you see the difference here? This is huge. This is, a, this is a big deal. One more. I think Matthew 9, 20 through 22, this woman who had suffered from this blood flow issue for 12 years, she gets to Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment. Remember this story? She walked away from Jesus that day whole. She hadn't been whole in 12 years. And now she is. Why? Because she's in the perfection, she's in the presence of perfect wholeness. And so she is made whole. You've got glimpses like this one in Matthew 27 when Jesus was on the cross and that earthquake and he died. The earthquake came and the, that veil of the temple, that, that room where God symbolically dwelled, that veil was torn in two, ripped open. That place where nobody could enter except one person once a year on the Day of Atonement. That room was open wide. All these things signifying what? God is holy, but God is allowing us to come into his presence because he is making us holy. One more about this idea. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, that whole paragraph is pretty neat, but you got this idea. 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, you see what's happening? In the Old Testament, you're kicked out of the garden. We can't be in the presence of God. Uh, you know, Moses sees God in the burning bush, and God says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Isaiah comes into the presence of God. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God purifies his lips. You've got Moses not being able to come into the tabernacle because he's not holy. You've got all these requirements and all these fences built. But what's happening? You get glimpses of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, of a day coming when God is going to send His healing and His holiness out for everybody. And Jesus starts modeling that. He touches the leper and He heals him. He touches the woman with a blood flow problem and heals her. He touches the dead little girl and brings her to life. God's wholeness is starting to become our wholeness. We can enter into the holy of holies now through the blood of Jesus where God is is holy. Now, I want to finish in Revelation 22. I love this, I love this notion, this idea. Revelation 22, where I started, or where we went earlier. Holy. Are you holy? You could answer that in either way and you'd be right, I think. Many of you would, you know. You could say, no, uh-uh. Nope, nope, <laughs> not. Thought some things this week I shouldn't have thought. Did some things I shouldn't have done. I'm not, I'm not holy, I'm just not. But you also could say, yeah, I am holy. And your thoughts wouldn't have gone back to, necessarily to, to the bad mistakes you made of the last week or so. You could say, I'm, I'm holy, and you also would be right. You see what's happening? This is the Bible story in a nutshell, okay? This is, this is what's happening in Scripture. And I want to close with this. I want to leave you with this. And I want you to think about this. And I want, you to, I want you to revel in this. If you're a Christian, you are holy. You are holy because, not, not because, you look back on your, your, your ledger sheet from the last seven days and you think, well, you know, I was 98% good. Or I had a bad week. I was 63% good, but still a passing grade, so I'm okay. It's not it. What happens is you're holy because the water has flowed out of the temple and it is making life because perfection and wholeness comes from Jesus and everything he touches becomes holy because in, in, in Revelation 22, when this is going to be realized in a full and absolute sense, but it's, it's an image of what is happening even now. You are, we are, if we're in Christ, becoming and being made holy. Not because we've done everything right, but because perfection and holiness flow from the only one who is perfect and the only one who is holy. And He reaches out to you and me. And He touches the hand of the leper. He touches the hand of the sinner. He touches the hand of the woman or the man who's made a mess of her or his life. And instead of the sin, instead of the leprosy, instead of the imperfection flowing to him, his holiness flows to us. And we stand here able to come into the presence of God right now at this moment because of him. Because he is whole and he is perfect and he is holy and God has and is, has shared and is sharing that with us. 
So in Revelation 22, when John gets that vision of what it's going to be like when everything is finished and everything is real and everything is as it ought to be and as it will one day be, when he sees that vision in Revelation 22 and he sees what it's going to be like, there are a couple of things that I hope you saw. He talks about rivers. There were rivers in the Garden of Eden. There was that river that flowed from the temple making everything whole. And he talks about that in Revelation 22 and he says, those rivers... Rivers of God's holiness will be there. We don't need a light because God is there. And then he talks about the tree of life. We got kicked out of there. I got kicked out of there. You've been kicked out too, right? We got kicked out because we did what Adam did. We did what Eve did. We got kicked out. But God is inviting us back in to the rivers to the tree of life where holiness dwells infinitely and perfectly. See, that is what God is doing. We stand on holy ground because of the blood of Christ. We are in the holy of holies even now because of the blood of Christ. When everything is finished and all of our sins have been removed, eternally and perfectly and completely. We will dwell in His presence. God will dwell in our presence in a way that we can only, we can only dream of, but which we're experiencing in shadow form even now. See, it's a beautiful thing. God calls us to holiness. You think about, you think about what this means. This, what this means. It means, 1 Peter 1, Peter, Peter uses this kind of language when he says, you be holy. As he who called you is holy, so you ought to be holy in all, uh, all the way, in your manner of life, the way that you live. You need to be holy. But you know what he's saying is, God has made you holy. He's declared you holy, so be that. God has made you that, so live that way. All the implications of that in the way that we live our lives. If you are not a Christian today, see what God wants to invite you to is he wants to invite you to come into his presence he wants, to, he wants you to stand on holy ground this morning where He is. That's where He wants you to be. You're not qualified to be there. And so the, the burning coal, as it were, or the hand of Jesus, whatever metaphor, whatever image you want, the river of life that flows from the temple, whatever image you've got in your mind, coming from the presence of God, and God comes to your life, to your lips, to your hands, to your life. And God says... You can come into my presence because you're holy. I am making you holy by the blood of Christ. And so he invites you into his presence today. You come to him, not because you've got everything worked out, but because you don't. You come to him and let him declare you holy because he's the only one who can. And as you're baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sins, his blood, see that we talked about the blood, his blood is that river of life that flows from the temple of God and makes you holy. What a beautiful thing that is. We'd love to participate in that with you even today. Come into his presence today. Stand on holy ground today. Come back to him today. If you've walked away from his presence, come back to him today. He's standing and he's beckoning you. Come and stand on holy ground. Let's stand and sing this song. <gasps>